We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. In the southern part of Texas, in the town of San Antonio, is a fortress all in ruins that the weeds have overgrown. Welcome back, America. Chew Hewitt. I'm opening up with the theme song from the Alamo, my favorite movie as a child, because Colonel Travis is in it, and he's also in this book, which I'm holding up on my uh, iPad, The Hero Code by Admiral William McRaven. Admiral McRaven, it is great to see you again. 37 years a SEAL, former commander of all special forces, best-selling New York Times author. And Admiral, I got to tell you, I like The Hero Code so much, I did something very rare for a talk show host. I bought it myself, my own money. That that never happens in my business. It's it's a completely one-off, and your your buddy McChrystal is going to say, wait a minute, I had to give him my book, and I... I just knew it would be a good thing. Uh, it's good to see you, Admiral. Um, congratulations on the Hero Code. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. It's a perfect graduation book. But mostly I want to begin with, I want to cover it all. We got time. We're not pressed. I want to start with your wonderful doctor, Dr. Michael Keating, who I want to be my doctor if I ever get anything that needs uh, a cancer specialist. Tell the audience about Dr. Keating, and especially on the day after the president announces we're leaving Afghanistan, He gives you the news that you're not going to die. And then your second question is, can I go back to Afghanistan? (laughs) Tell people about him. Yeah, so a little bit of background. In in 2010, I was diagnosed uh, with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which, you know, as far as cancers go, it's not the worst of cancers. But anytime you get a cancer diagnosis, it obviously uh, it scares you. Uh, But their initial prognosis uh, was going to call for me to come back from Afghanistan. I was in Afghanistan when I got the diagnosis. Uh, come back, get my spleen taken out, you know, start uh, a whole lot of chemotherapy, clearly going to affect my long-term career viability and my life, frankly. But my wife ended up uh, getting an appointment at MD Anderson Clinic in Texas. So we went back there. And as I tell in the story, you know, when you walk into a cancer clinic, you see these people that are battling cancer. uh, And it is tough. I mean, it is tough to see what they're going through. And uh, and frankly, I was uh, I was pretty depressed. I mean, I, I was down. I I knew that the the way things looked, my career was probably over. My life was going to change dramatically. And I walk into this, uh, the the doctor's office. My wife and I are waiting. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about all the terrible things that could happen. All of a sudden, the door flies open. And in walks this kind of ruddy-faced Australian. And he goes, hey, mate, give me a hug. I'm not a hugger, Hugh. Neither am I. I'm a Presbyterian. (laughs) I'll give him a hug, you know. So I gave him a hug. And he said, "Uh, ah, you're going to be fine. And I, I was stunned. And he turns to my wife and he says, uh, so you're the wife? And she nods and, and he says, well, you don't need to start looking for a new boyfriend. He's going to be just fine. And I said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Doc, I, I don't get it. And he said, well, look, he said the, the initial prognosis was correct, but we have new medicine, new procedures now. And the point of the story was I walked out of that room. I walked out of that room with hope. And the power of hope is, you know, as you well know, Hugh, I mean, it is the most powerful force in the world. When you have hope, you can get all over all these difficult, challenging times. 
And Michael Keating had this great sense of humor, uh, this great abundance of an ability to give people hope, and he certainly did for me. I'm going to remember all these stories because your collection of stories is very well curated. But I'm going to remember Dr. Keating and this part of the Hero Code, which is give hope every day to everyone you can, which I believe is, I'm going to paraphrase the Hero Code. People have to get the book if they want the exact writing of it. I think that's so important that people be lifting up rather than crushing down. Now, tell me something that's not in the book, Admiral. I know from my SEAL buddies, uh, friends of yours that we have in common, that you do a hot wash after every operation. So if it, if it goes bad, how do you both correct the error and yet give the hope back that it's not going to happen again? Yeah, great question. You know, one of the things we do in the special operations community, I think, as well as any other military unit, is we have these, as you point out, these kind of hot watches after every single mission. I mean, we review every single aspect of the mission. And when it doesn't go well, you know, you have to be able to correct it because people's lives are on the line. And frankly, uh, you know, you kind of take off the collar devices. So, you know, the Army captains and the privates and the admirals are all kind of uh, of equal value when it comes to critiquing how the, the mission went. So you get a chance to kind of get it off your chest to focus on the issues uh, that you think need to be corrected. But at the end of the day, you got to say, hey, boys, we got to get up and go out tomorrow. So put this one behind you. Learn the lessons, you know, learn how to correct the mistakes, and let's get on with it. Uh, you, you can't beat yourself up too bad. Uh, the most important thing is fix it, and we'll be better the next time. And that's the aspect of hope. We will be better the next time if we correct the mistakes on this mission. So, Admiral, I did mention at the beginning, I'll go back to the, the hero code shortly, but I did want your reaction to President Biden's announcement yesterday, we're out of Afghanistan on 9-11. I don't like the timing. I, I don't like leaving Bagram completely, but what was your reaction? Yeah, I was not surprised, uh, Hugh. I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is that this administration has, has come to the decision that we cannot win the war in Afghanistan militarily. And that you know, candidly, after 20 some odd, 20 years, I mean, that's probably the correct assessment. Uh, now, the, the timing, uh, what I do know is that uh, the president has consulted with the military leaders, uh, Scott Miller, who's the ISAF commander in Afghanistan, General Frank McKenzie, who's the CENTCOM commander, of course, Mark Milley and, and uh, Secretary Austin. All four of these guys have extensive experience in Afghanistan. And so as a military leader, the most important thing you want is you want your advice and counsel to be heard. It doesn't have to be taken every time, but you have to have the opportunity to have a good hearing and, and to let the president, uh, you know, in this case, you know, think through. Because I know they told the president about all the potential things that could happen uh, if we left. Uh, and when the president, of course, makes a decision, we're a professional military. Our job is to say, once we've had a chance to argue it out, the president makes a decision, we say, yes, sir. And then we move out and do what the American public asks us to do. But the other thing to remember is, you know, you take a look over the last 20 years, we have not had an attack on the United States in the last 20 years, not since 9-11. Uh, you know, we have, uh, while we were in Afghanistan, we built a security force of about, I don't know, 350,000 Afghans. So hopefully we will leave the Afghans in a better security position uh, than what they were in, you know, uh, right after 9-11. There are some pretty pessimistic warnings out there today, Senator Rubio, Senator McConnell. We'll put those aside for another day. Let's hope it doesn't come true. Let's go back to the hero code. We have a friend in common, I discovered reading the hero code. Gary Sinise is a friend of mine. He's a friend of yours. 
And I am not surprised that he talked you into a C, whatever it was, 130, 17. I don't know. Tell people about that because that's Sinise to a, to a T without a T in his name. Yeah, this was great. It was, uh, I think, 2006. Uh, I was a one-star admiral. We were in Afghanistan. And General John Abizade, who was the CENTCOM commander, had come to Bagram uh, to meet with all the admirals and generals uh, to talk about the way ahead, the, the strategy for the next year, the war plans. So we're at the, uh, the Bagram Chow Hall in a secluded room. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, the, the door opens up. The, the general's aide comes in. And behind him is a civilian. And of course, you know, we, we're, we're surprised to see this civilian. He is clearly surprised to have walked into a room full of generals and an admiral. And he looks around, and, and you can tell he's a little nervous. And he says, uh, uh, who's in charge here? And of course, we, we all giggled a little bit because we knew who was in charge. And it was General Abizade. And Abizade says, uh, well, I guess that would be me. So Gary goes up. Uh, he, he says, uh, well, sir, I'm, I'm uh, Gary Sinise. I'm an actor. I played Lieutenant Dan in the movie Forrest Gump. And uh, of course, everybody remembered the movie and the magnificent job uh, Gary did. And then he said, I'm here because I'm trying to get some school supplies to children in Afghanistan. And it was interesting to watch the tenor in the room change. Here was this guy, Gary Sinise, who was you know, taking his own money, his own time, coming to a combat zone to help the Afghan kids. And as I say in the book, you know, it is easy to get jaded in war. You know, you, you don't want to lose uh, your toughness. You, you, you don't want to make sure that you, uh, that you don't allow yourself to, to weep for every dying soul because it will take away the warrior in you. But I got to tell you, you know, having watched Gary as he made this impassioned plea, uh, you felt good about it. You felt good about the fact that people were out there doing things to help uh, these young kids in Afghanistan. Gary's compassion, his passion came through. And the last thing that you ever want to lose in war is your humanity. And watching Gary Sinise uh, have this passionate plea, this compassion for these kids, I mean, it, 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 it really gave us our humanity back. And boy, we were so happy to, to spend time with him. And then, of course, every time I turned around, every time I went to Walter Reed, every time I went to Bethesda, Gary Sinise was there. You know, helping out the troops without any fanfare. And again, he's given millions of dollars to, to the causes to support our troops. Just a remarkable human being. I'm amazed by him. Whenever he asks for anything, I'll do whatever Gary wants. If he's building a house for a wounded vet, you know, we'll do whatever we can because he is. And, and I've started with the easy ones. Now, none of these are easy, but hope and compassion are available to everyone. And you can do it on a daily basis and you lay it out in the hero code. Let's go to the hardest one, forgiveness. And I think that is the hardest one. Courage is the one that requires, as Churchill says in the hero code, you quote him, it's the foundation on which all of the other virtues are built because without courage, the others fail. But the hardest is forgiveness. And I actually think I won't forget your sitting down and talking to the father of the, of the dead girl. Uh, again, this is a storybook. I'm just going to pick a few stories. Tell that one, if you will, Admiral. Yeah, the, the toughest uh, time in, in, frankly, my entire career, Hugh. Uh, you know, I, I talk about it in the very last chapter, and, and you're right. You know, we look at courage, as Churchill said, as the, you know, the, the first of human qualities because it guarantees all the rest. But if I had to pick one quality that I think rises above all of the 10 that I list in the book, it, it is this act of forgiveness. In this particular case, 
We had had an egregious, uh, you know, horrible uh, incident in Afghanistan where the soldiers went forward. We had a, a bad guy in a compound. Uh, the soldiers got there, uh, mistaken identity. Uh, a couple of guys in the compound began to draw down on the soldiers, thinking that they were Taliban. The soldiers thought the guys in the compound were Taliban. And, uh, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, two men were killed and, and a couple of women as a result of a, of a shoot through. It was just, uh, I mean, indescribable. And I, I realized that, uh, you know, as inadvertent as it was and obviously uh, unintentional, uh, I had an obligation to go down and talk to the father. Uh, and I wanted to pay my respects and ask for his forgiveness. And I remember before going down, I, uh, I talked to uh, a general, General Salim, who was my uh, Afghan counterpart there in Bagram. And I said, what do I say? What do I say to a father who's, uh, who has lost his children? And he, he looked at me kind of funny and he said, uh, oh, well, he will understand. He said, it is the, the will of Allah. And oh, by the way, he said, the important thing to remember is that if he forgives you, it will take a burden off him as well. He will not have to live with the anger. He will not have to live with the pain if he forgives you. And I thought, well, that, that's easy to say, but I think it's a hell of a lot harder to do. Well, of course, I, I go to uh, the small town in Gardez, and I sit down with the father, and, and you know, my heart was just breaking. And and again, I was I was at a loss of what I really should say, but I, I frankly, I kind of poured out my heart to him. I said, look, you know, I'm a soldier. I've been away. I have children. I just can't imagine what you're going through. And and I asked for his forgiveness. And you know, I could see the pain in his eyes. And his son was with him. And I, I tell you, when I walked in the room initially, I mean, the son, uh, you know, I, I think he was ready to take me down right then and there. But after we had a conversation, uh, you know, he, he turned to me and through the translator, he said, you know, uh, you know tell the admiral that, you know, you know we, we have no, no hate in our heart for him. And I thought, wow. And the point I raise in the book, you, is that, you know, today in society, you know, we seem easily aggrieved. You know, every little slight makes people mad and it makes them angry. And I think that they, they want to hold on to this anger because it, it gives them power over the person that aggrieved them. And, you know, I think back on this, uh, this father uh, who forgave me and forgave my soldiers. Uh, and and I, I talk about, you know, some of the other acts of incredible forgiveness uh, in the book. And you say, you know, if those people can forgive those acts, can't we find a way to be a little bit more forgiving? Uh, it's not easy. It's easier sometimes to run into a burning building to save someone than to forgive someone for uh, a slight against you. So People have forgotten, Admiral. They've kind of forgotten Dylan Roof. You don't. It's in the book. I was on Face the Nation the Sunday morning after Dylan Roof murdered the people at Mother Emanuel AME with Gwen Eiffel, the late Gwen Eiffel. And Gwen was almost there, but not quite there. And it wasn't for her to forgive anyway. It was for the people at Mother Emanuel to forgive. We can't tell people to forgive. It's a choice people have to make. But you are right to recall the perhaps most uh, inspiring example of forgiveness in modern American experiences of those parishioners at that church 
after they welcomed in into their circle, spent an hour doing Bible study. It's pretty apparent to me. You don't say it in the book, but that you are a Christian. It's apparent to me. And it's supposed to be something that we do, but it is a lot easier recommended than done. And I, I think your story of the Afghan father is great. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. There with Sierra Pacific, they lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Now I wanna, I've got my eight pages of note. I want to go back to the beginning, to the little blonde Megatron, uh, because uh, Lieutenant Ashley, I want to make sure I get her last name correct, uh, uh, White from the uh, cultural uh, support team. Uh, she sounds like an amazing woman, and I'm glad you began your book with her because I want to remember her now, and by doing so, the 2,400 other Americans who gave their lives in Afghanistan over 20 years, and you begin the book with her because you begin the book with courage. Yeah, it just, uh, and again, there were so many examples to choose from in Courage, but, but Ashley White's really uh, jumped out at me. And, and uh, so when I was the commander of the Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan, you know, is that when the soldiers went on to the compounds, uh, you know, it was culturally inappropriate for men, either, you know, American men or Afghan men, uh, to, to handle the women on the compound, to, to touch them, to ask them to move here. And yet, you know, the, the women had a lot of the intelligence, had a lot of the information. And also we needed to make sure that they were safe and, and kind, of, kind of out of harm's way. And that was hard to do when it was a, a group of men. So I went forward to, to my boss at the U.S. Special Operations Command. I said, look, I need to get some women going out on these, uh, on these operations with me. But I mean, they have got to be, you know, incredibly tough women. They're gonna have to be physically tough because these, these are combat missions, out with the Army Rangers, out with the Navy SEALs, out with Army Special Operations, uh, I need them to be tough mentally because they are going to see things that, uh, that you know, they've never seen in their lives in terms of the horrors of war. And so we selected uh, just some of the finest uh, you know, uh, women in, in the Army to be part of these cultural support teams. And Ashley White was one of those. And, uh, and the, the point of the story was uh, not the particular night that she lost her life that she gave her life, I should say, uh, for her fellow soldiers. She stepped on a pressure plate mine uh, on a mission of hers. Um, it was every night. That was her courage. You know, I tell you, in, in combat, you're always afraid. You're, you're afraid. I mean, you're going to hop, hop on a helicopter flying through mountains at night. People are shooting at you. Even if you're sleeping at night, rockets are coming into the compound. You take that fear and you put it down deep inside and you surround it with everything you've got. Uh, because you don't want it to come out. And Ashley White did this every night. Every night she took one step and kind of got on the helicopter. She jocked up, she did her job. And I thought the courage of Ashley White was that she volunteered, she volunteered to, to go to war, to be on the toughest missions around. And then every single night she built up that courage, she manifested that courage and she went and did her job. Uh, and it was just a, I, I thought a remarkable example of courage because Courage isn't always just one shining moment. It is sometimes, but not always. Sometimes courage is 
you know, a parent taking care of their child in the worst of possible conditions, a policeman on the street doing the right thing, a coach, you know, mentoring uh, their, their athletes. I mean, the, these can be courageous moments and they don't have to be one shiny moment. They have to be the moment you get up every single day and go do something that makes the people around you better. And that's what Ashley White did. Uh, uh, Admiral, I, I, I've been very lucky to have had General McChrystal in this studio and on the West Coast and have General Mattis on the air with me and at the Nixon Library and have Richard Meyer on the show and to have you on this show. That's Army, Air Force, Air Corps, Marine. Got them all covered. I read all your books. The amazing thing about all those books, and it's not in the hero code, I want to ask you, is the resilience that you four and every other, David Petraeus has been on, John Abizade has been on, I'm a civilian, got, got a, a family of warriors around me, but I'm a civilian. And my, my wonder at your careers is resilience. And it's not in the hero code, but 37 years. I mean, nobody, Mattis is even longer. He's older than you are. And I think General McChrystal is a little bit, is, he, is your contemporary. Where does the resilience come from to keep doing this year after year after year? It's not a radio show. This is a three-hour gig in the morning. I have to get up early. So what? But I mean, 37 years of war. How do you do that? And Hugh, I would have done it for another 37. You know, when, when you love your job, when you love the people that you're serving with, when you love the mission, it's never too long. And I know that uh, Jim Mattis, Stan McChrystal, Dick Meyer, they would all say the same thing. They would have stayed for the rest of their life because, again, it's the people you serve with. It's the mission you do. And I would offer, certainly for me, it's the fact that I have had this great partner in my wife for almost 43 years now. You need somebody that can kind of help you. Uh, you know, when you have those moments where things aren't going well and you think, man, I, I am ready to throw in the towel. And she says... No, you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off. You're going to be just fine. You know, you need somebody like that. And I, I know all of those uh, generals you named have someone like that. I got to ask about, about Georgia and your wife. Uh, when when uh, Dr. Keating says you're going to be all right, she asks, can he keep drinking? Said, oh, God, no, don't stop drinking. I just thought that was her first question is not, you know, nothing. About you. you go on to go back to Afghanistan. She wants you to keep drinking. I just thought she's a, she must be an amazing woman. Uh, let's go to humility, uh, Admiral, because I'll tell a story and then have you tell the story of Charlie. My buddy Tim Cook is a, a Vietnam-era fighter pilot and trial lawyer. And so he flew his missions, and he was he's pretty impressed with himself. As you note, uh, fighter pilots are at the top of the food chain. They all know where they are in the food chain, right? And uh, got a fighter pilot in the family. I know about that. But uh, Tim knows his own his value, and he flew down to Miramar one day, diverted from San Diego, and he's got a, a guy on the bus who's being driven from San Diego down to the main, from Miramar down to the city, and he doesn't quite know what's going on. So Tim puffs up and says, well, I used to land here when I was in the Navy, and I flew A4s and blah, blah, tells him all. And the guy is really interested in him, really interested in him. And he asks him a thousand questions, and Tim gets puffier and puffier. He tells this story on himself all the time. And at the end, he finally realizes, what are you doing here? Guy says, well, I'm in town to give a speech. Why? why well, my son's a coach in town. I'm going to give a little speech. Why would you give a speech for a coach? Well, I played football. And Tim looks over, and he's sitting next to Y.A. Tittle, his childhood hero. And he has been talking for 50 minutes on a bus ride to his childhood hero about himself. And he'd been endlessly embarrassed about that. You didn't talk about yourself with Charlie, but you now know why the Charlie story resonated with me. And I want you to tell the Charlie story because Y.A. Tittle had what Charlie has. 
Yeah, a, a couple of a couple of years ago, I was uh, doing an event for uh, Dr. Kenneth Cooper up in Dallas, and uh, we had a small dinner party ahead of time. And seated around the table, uh, the kind of the head table to dinner party, uh, was uh, Roger Staubach and his wife Marianne, who have become good friends since I returned to Texas. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Cooper and his wife, and a couple of other folks. But but before the dinner started, you know, I got up and I kind of went around the table. I was flying solo that night. George Ann was uh, back in in Austin. And I introduced myself, but I get around to the far end of the table and there's a, an, an elderly couple there and I, I don't catch the guy's last name, but, but I know his first name was Charlie. So we sit down for dinner and, uh, and so Charlie and his wife and I start talking and, and I don't know, the dinner went hour and a half, two hours, something like that. And, uh, and the entire time, you know, Charlie and I are talking, I, I'm not able to really kind of figure out what Charlie does, uh, but he's just as nice as he can be. He's kind of in his early eighties. Um, and, but I find out he was in the air force. And I said, oh, yeah, my father was in the Air Force and my son's in the Air Force. So we talk about that. But, but all Charlie wants to do is talk about my family. He wants to know about my son in the Air Force, about my other two children, wants to know how George Ann and I met, uh, wants to know about my career. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I try to kind of get back to him. And he's, uh, you know, in the Air Force. Uh, so, well, you know, what'd you fly? Back to your point about fighter plane. He said, ah, oh, you know, a little of this, a little of that. And I thought, oh, this and that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't want I don't want it. Well, I didn't want to go down that path because, you know, what if he wasn't a fighter pilot sort of thing? So, uh, you know, at, at the end of the meal, you know, he's very gracious and he invites me uh, uh, down for barbecue at uh, in New Brunswick, where his home is. And after the dinner's over, we're walking down the stairs and Roger Staubach comes up to me and he says, uh, I see you were you were talking to Charlie. I said, yeah, just a, a really, really nice fellow. He goes, can you imagine that? I said, what are you talking about, Roger? He goes, I mean, can you imagine what Charlie did? I said, I'm sorry, Roger. What? He goes, you know, walking on the moon. I said, what? He goes, Charlie Duke. And then, of course, I went, oh, my goodness, General Charles Duke, the youngest man ever to walk on the moon. And not once in that hour and a half conversation did Charlie happen to mention the small little fact that he walked on the moon. Yeah. And I go back to, you know, this humility of the man. But it was, as I say in the book, it was humility that was kind of hard won. I mean, he came back from being on the moon, uh, you know, to your point, you know, kind of puffed up. There's all the press. There's a, and his wife, Dottie, had become a Christian and he kind of followed in her footsteps. And I think that really helped him understand that, look, you know, in the vastness of the universe, even walking on the moon uh, is uh, is a humbling experience, and uh, you know humility is one of those noble qualities. And certainly, Charlie Duke had it uh, and had a lot of it. Do you think, Admiral, that that perspective and humility comes easier to military men and women who spend time around the globe, who see cultures that are not our own, who are not as insulated as Americans are? And I say this with pride from want and trial and burden that is the everyday existence of 90% of the world. Do you think that maybe humility is easier for men and women in the military? You know, I don't know if it's easier, but you make a great point. Uh, I can offer that in my time, uh, you know, traveling around the world, I think I figured I'd, I'd been to 90 countries at some point in time. Uh, and, and you, you know, you see goodness and you see these noble qualities and you see heroism in you know mud huts in Yemen, uh, you see it in you know the villages in the Philippines and Afghanistan and and Iraq. I mean, you see it in places 
where you don't necessarily expect it. And to your point, you know, you know, these people that are part of these cultures, there are great heroes everywhere. And, and you realize that just because you're an American and you live in a nice house and drive a nice car and you think you have accomplished things in your life, then you meet a family who lives in near poverty in the Philippines, who has raised six children uh, and the children are all going to go off and do something good and honorable. And you say, you know what, that's pretty damn impressive. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little dose of humility would be good for me. I, um, I, so I, I, I don't know if humility makes us more humble, but it gives us a better perspective sometimes. I, I couldn't agree with you. I just think it's so integral. I don't like to be around people who are talking about themselves all the time. I just like to be around people who are actually asking questions. It's a good indication of whether or not someone's a learner and someone is curious. Sacrifice. Uh, the USS Ralph Johnson. I've been in a ship commissioning. It was for my mother-in-law's first husband, George Phillip, who was skippering uh, the twigs when it went down off of Okinawa. And all of the veterans of the twigs came to the commissioning and they came to the decommissioning. The guys who were in the water didn't make it. So when you went to the USS Ralph Johnson, I'm sure that audience was full, like the, the commissioning of the Philip, of people connected to the ship. And the sacrifice Ralph Johnson made give me a little chill even as I talk about it. I want to make sure we talk about him as well, Admiral. I'm, I'm aware of your time. I won't take you much longer. I'm not going to read the whole book out loud, but I want to mention Ralph Johnson, talk about integrity and mentoring and be done. Yeah, I mean, Ralph Johnson's just a, a remarkable story. You, I mean, here you have, uh, you know, a young black kid from Charleston, South Carolina, you know, raised in the 60s in the era of Jim Crow and, and in the tough times in the South. Uh, he joins the Marines, becomes part of this, this great unit called Texas Pete. And at the age of 19, finds himself on a hill in Vietnam and the hill is under attack uh, from the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. They're making a, a full on assault on the hill uh, you know, satchel charges are being thrown, uh, demolition charges, rounds are coming in. And at one point in time, a grenade lands in the foxhole with Ralph and two of his Marine buddies. And Ralph, unselfishly, uh, great, uh, you know, with great sacrifice, jumps on the grenade and, and is killed instantly. And, uh, you know, you, you think back on the effect of this young black Marine saving white Marines and others uh, with his act of courage and act of sacrifice. And it really changed the view of a lot of, I think, the, the people uh, in society at the time when they heard about this great act of sacrifice. And I have gotten to know uh, Helen Richards, uh, Ralph's sister. She is just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And she talks about the fact that Ralph uh, was so kind and so gentle uh, and uh, and just, again, also a wonderful human being. Uh, it is a remarkable story of, of sacrifice uh, that, that we could all emulate. And the Navy, uh, God bless them, decided to name one of their newest destroyers, uh, the USS Ralph Johnson. So great, uh, a great story and, and, uh, and good on the Navy for this remarkable it, hero. It is a great chapter in the book on sacrifice, and we all have to make them every day. It's another admonition that you make. Now, courage is the first value, and nothing else works without it, and forgiveness is the hardest, but the one that brings them together, and I saved it for last, absent a question unrelated to the book, which is integrity, because if you lose your integrity, the rest collapse. And there is in that chapter, by the way, a couple of great little insights of the Pentagon, like a briefer never gives up his numbers. I, I hadn't read that before. Never give up your numbers, or you'll never get your numbers again. And 
your Captain Grabowski telling you, if you want to survive in this building, which is a little glimpse for a civilian and to, you know, if you, a career officer, want to survive in this place where it all happens, you're going to have to do the following. And his message was, you're going to have to keep your integrity. And just explain why giving up a couple of ships saved the SEALs. Submarines, I guess, mini-subs, yeah. right? I mean, it was at a, a fairly crucial time uh, in the advancement of naval special warfare. So this was uh, 1986. Uh, you know, 1986, the Cold War was in full swing. Uh, there were a lot of people that, that were questioning whether or not do, do we need these frogmen anymore. Vietnam was over. Uh, and so we were always kind of wrestling for our budget. And I don't know that it was an existential fight, but it was a fight for our, you know, for the health of the community. And so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, my, my, I think it was my first day, if not my first day, my first week on the job. And, uh, and I'm rushing to a meeting with my boss who's going to brief on our budget. And to make a long story short, uh, we get in. Uh, my boss is a, a Navy SEAL named Captain Ted Grabowski, wonderful uh, SEAL. I, I spent four tours with him uh, in total. But we're briefing a three-star Admiral, Admiral Metcalf, who's going to decide whether or not we're going to get this money. And to your point on the briefers, what you always know on a resource brief is, you know, you don't back off your numbers because the expectation from the admiral or whoever you're briefing is, you've done your research, you've done your homework. These are the numbers. I mean, you know, you're not trying to sell a used car here. You're trying to, you know, put forward, uh, forward to the boss what the numbers are. Well, at some point in time, Admiral Metcalf, who was this, you know, tough old uh, salty sailor, turns to Grabowski and says, you know, Ted, uh, I just don't know about this. I mean, you know, how much money do you SEALs need for ammunition? And, you know, do you need all these mini subs? And Grabowski kind of uncharacteristically, at least I thought it was, says, you know, Admiral, you're right. Uh, we can cut our ammunition budget. We can cut off some of our, our little mini subs. Uh, we can do that. And I was watching the bean counters, you know, the accounts going, what? What's he doing? And uh, so Metcalf said, okay, Ted, if you can do that, then, you know, you can keep your budget. So afterwards, of course, I'm new on the job. And, and I said, sir, I don't understand. We just got crushed. And he said, no, not only didn't we get crushed, you know, we survived an L-shaped ambush and, and, and we came out victorious. He said, Bill, let me tell you one thing. He said, in this building, I have a golden rule. Never lie or misrepresent the truth. He said, because if you lie or misrepresent the truth, eventually you'll get caught. And if you get caught, people will no longer trust you. And if you are no longer trustworthy, you're no longer of any value to me. So to me, trust had a value proposition. It was not only the right thing to do, to be honest, but it had this value proposition. If people trust you, they will trust you with their relationships, they will trust you with their lives, they will trust you with their business. But without trust, without integrity, without honesty, kind of everything else falls apart. And, and as a young lieutenant at the time, I never forgot Ted Grabowski's point about never lie or misrepresent the truth, which always seems to be the easier way out. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna shade it a little bit. You just can't do that and be a leader of integrity. No, Admiral, uh, we gotta wrap up, but I wanna ask you um, about mentoring. I, I'm leaving a lot in the book. People have to go read about the airman who would not let you pass. It's like the Black Knight and Monty Python. She would not let you get to the president. Uh, and I love that story. I love all the stories in the book.
But uh, it seems to me a common denominator of the books I've read by serious military leaders is that they're very interested in mentoring. Your first book, Make the Bed, is your graduation speech, which people have watched a gazillion times on air. Sea Stories was full of it. And now The Hero Code is really about advice to young people on how to live your life. What is it? Why does the military put this in and it never shakes loose of all these military leaders or career professionals that I've met that they're always, Admiral Stab is a weekly guest, a friend of yours. Uh, he's always talking about the young officers and what you tell a young officer. You just told a mentoring story, Captain Grabowski, to you as a young lieutenant. Where did that come from? When did that culture develop? Well, it's always been in the military since, since I came in. And I would offer well before that, uh, my father was an Air Force officer. And, and I, I think it is a little bit of this sense of parenting and wanting your children to be better than you are, to, to improve. So the military understands that, look, as an officer or a senior enlisted, you have an obligation to train, you know, to mentor, to teach, to inspire, to manage the young men and women beneath you. Because, one, you want them to be part of a great team. Everybody wants to come in and be part of a great team. But also, you want the organization to be better than you found it. And the only way for it to be better than you found it is to make the new people coming up better than you are. Uh, so you really do have this obligation to mentor. I mean, this is the whole point of heroes. You know, every society needs heroes because they inspire us. They inspire us to be better. They inspire the younger generation to be better than the current generation. And I think that's kind of the point of mentoring. Take the opportunity to make the organization better by mentoring the young people below you. That's well done in this book, That's The Hero Code. I, I love the fact you like Superman as a kid. I love Colonel Travis being in here because I like the movie. Admiral McRaven, congratulations. Another number one bestseller, I think, on the way. Thanks for spending so much time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you.